Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to uh, First Press. My name is Eric Hansen, and I'm one of the pastors here. And usually, I would love for you to be able to talk and greet one another if we go from a speaking thing to a speaking thing. But this is a very full sermon. So we're going to skip the niceties today, I think, and uh, dive uh, right in. And actually, what I'd like to start with is a, <clears throat> is a recommendation Probably like many of you, I probably I listen to four or five or six different uh, podcasts, sometimes religiously, sometimes not. Um, but one that I listen to almost every weekday is one called Up First. It's an NPR uh, podcast. It's about 12 to 15 minutes long. That's usually just sort of like the summary highlights of their sort of their morning edition show. It's perfect length for me to like, if I can be showered and dressed and drinking coffee from play to end, I've had a really good start to my day. Um, but every now and then they publish bonus, a bonus one. And uh, yesterday um, they published one uh, through, their web, through their podcast that actually is another podcast called Throughline. And June 13th's uh, Throughline um, was actually a, about a 45-minute episode on evangelicalism. And uh, oftentimes when people talk about evangelicalism, I get nervous. They don't get it right. Um, they say things are not true of me. I am an evangelical. Um, this one doesn't get it all right, but it gets it mostly right. And I really want to commend it to you as a way to understanding um, how did evangelicalism sort of come into prominence and place here uh, in the United States of America? What's the religious history that got us to this place? And it's actually it's quite good. I found, I found myself really appreciating the way they describe um, who small e evangelicals are. I'm not necessarily a big e political movement evangelical person. The back part does talk about how that shift does happen both in people's minds and in the political landscape. That's also um, probably worth listening and exploring and also probably not the only way to tell that story. But it's good and I do recommend especially the first 30 to 40 minutes for your own edification. All right, so we are on this fairly long series of working our way through the book of Revelation, the apocalypse. And as a reminder, the apocalypse, that word does, does not mean cataclysm, although today it might seem like it will mean that as we get a little further into Revelation 14. Instead, what apocalypse means, what the revelation is, is it's a, it's a revealing. It's peeling back the curtain so that we might know from God's perspective a little bit more about um, what God is doing, the confidence of what the finish line might look like, and how we can think about some of these circumstances that are in front of us. But it's tricky. So as we've gone through, I've wanted to sort of give us, try to give us some helpful handholds to understand what this thing is about. And one of the things that I said last week, I don't want to belabor this point, but I think it was helpful for those who are here today but weren't here last week. And one of the ways we can understand these images in a way that might be helpful to us and take some of the strangeness out of them is to think of them almost like political cartoons. So this isn't news headlines, but it's an image that requires some parsing out and understanding to understand what's actually being said. And uh, again, I just, I just Googled like, famous political cartoons, and this one was like in the top two rows, and uh, I thought it was interesting to try to make my point. Imagine if you were given this in a vision, and you weren't able to convey it um, by just saying, 
cut and paste, here's the cartoon. Imagine instead if what you had to say is, well, I saw a man with a ginormous fuzzy head and a dress made of squares and under his arm was a gas bag and horns were protruding out of his armpit. And behind him were thousands upon thousands of people and he was, he was leading them on this precarious path but only to eventually lead them to their death as they fall off a cliff. Now, for you, for those of you who are maybe sort of aware of the ongoing debate about Brexit and what's been good about it and what probably is not going to be good about it, some people now say, that says something very different, even as I describe it to you, right? And that actually is the way also the way Revelation is working. It's giving us a set of of images. There's There's a language behind the images that we have to work a little bit to understand. The second thing we've wanted to be saying over and over and over again is it's, it's not the best way to read Revelation if you're going to try to read it as like one long narrative arc, okay? Instead, a better way to read it is, is almost as if you're in an art gallery and you're seeing a whole bunch of visions with a similar set of themes on a wall because it's actually sort of recursive or spiral in form. What we see is sort of parts of this story coming back around again in some other new or a fresh way, and you'll see it again today. So that story, sort of in big, sort of big headlines, there's almost always a story, especially because of the circumstance of the, of the church uh, in the first century. It was much more like the circumstance of the church in Iran today than the state of the church in Boulder. Okay? And there was persecution. And there was conflict. And what we see in these images is that the conflict eventually leads to God's glory and victory, and eventually celebration. So there's sort of there's the recursive themes. Don't read it as one long sort of storyline, but people have made that mistake over time, and that means we sort of end up trying to read it like a timeline and wondering, like, when is the mark of the beast going to come? Which we talked about last week. Finally, I just want to be really clear, and I couldn't find a picture because no picture will do it justice. Over and over and over in Revelation, we'll see it again today, that the the primary thing for us to know about is that this actually is the promised work and victory of Jesus Christ. This is about his throne. Did you know something like 80% of all the uses of the word throne in the New Testament are in the book of Revelation? The point here is, is God is the one who sits on the throne as the Lamb of God. And if we read this in some way where we're trying to sort of read it as human historical events, we miss the point that Jesus has the victory. And he has it as the Lamb of God confronting some of the most violent and vile empires of all time. So if we can remember some of those things, some of the things we're going to read today might be helpful because actually today is one of those times when, when it's just hard to read and be like, yes, this is my faith. I get this. You have to do a little bit of work to put the dots together, and I, I hope we can do that. So why don't we spend a few moments praying and asking for the Lord's presence to be with us and to work through us, and we'll dive in. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for bringing us uh, together to this place And we recognize, Lord, as we come to this book that is seldom read and seldom studied, that there is something that you intend for us to know 
and hear and do because of what is on these lines. So, Lord, like a pencil, would you sharpen our wit? Would you sharpen our vision? Would you whittle us down from everything but just seeking to hear from you? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. If you are our Lord, our rock, and our Redeemer. And all God's people said, Amen. Um, okay, if we're going to really understand today, we have to go back to say a couple quick things about yes, last week. So last week, we, um, what we saw is the, the dragon, the beast. Two beasts, in fact, are working in concert to disrupt God's people doing everything that they can to distract, to turn heads and minds away from the Lamb of God and, and towards some other alternative way. And one of the things that we saw or that we learned together is, is um, there was sort of like there was this interesting sort of clash of what was actually happening on the ground politically and spiritually, how we might think about that in an ongoing way. And what we learned is that in some places, in some cities, there was this growing animosity against uh, Christ's followers. And the culture was so bent on the worship of Rome, so bent on the cult of Rome, that to be a Christian was becoming increasingly difficult. Instead, um, and actually what was sometimes happening is, is on your way into the marketplace, there would be a, a little shrine, and you had to worship at the shrine. You had to worship an idol. And if you worship the idol, then you'd get a mark, and you could participate freely in the culture. If you received the mark, you could go to market. If you're willing to sort of set aside your trust in Jesus, you could participate with the people. And because we're merging both these things that are actually happening and with a sort of larger theological point, John goes on to say that we should be discerning, but that, that mark of that beast, that mark is a number. Six, six, six. And that number is important maybe primarily for us today because it is the number of perfection, seven minus one. It is imperfection upon imperfection upon imperfection to choose the cult. So we're going to see this understanding of what it means to sort of take on a mark, sort of uh, maybe to maybe think about like putting it on a jersey so people know what team you're on. You're going you're to see again another version of that mark as we open up to the, the opening uh, phrase and the opening stories of Revelation 14. When we get to Revelation 14, the image changes really quick, and we're going to go through a, a series of three images in chunks before we read them. So the first one, um, what we see is the scene changes to Mount Zion, the, the mountain of deliverance and of hope and of God's blessing. And on Mount Zion are 144,000 people who have taken on the mark of the Father, not the mark of the culture. And they gather to worship in a way that they hear music that sounds like wind and thunderclaps and harps all at the same time. 
And they're gathered around, it says, the, the throne where the Lamb is and where the elders are. And they're all sort of worshiping together, singing a song that only the redeemed can hear and understand. And it looks like there are people that are, are maybe, there's something weird about them. It looks like maybe they're, they're ready for, for battle. And we know that because it actually says that um, they are, they're like virgins. And when we hear that word, we automatically think, oh, we're about to read a, a teaching about human sexuality. We are not. The imagery is, is much more, it comes out of the, the Old Testament. Where when the Israelites went to war, they were called to live a, a life of ritual purity during the time of battle, during the time of preparation. That include abstaining from sex. And what you'll see if you flip that around in the Old Testament is what you see over and over and over again is, is those who do find themselves bowing down to an idol, chasing after something that, not is, that is not of God, it, well, they have adulterated themselves is what it says. Sometimes even nations can be a people of adultery, and it's not talking about sexuality, but about giving our hearts and minds and lives and spirits over to something that is not God. We've intimately given ourselves away to something that is an idol. And the Bible calls that adultery, often in the Old Testament. So we're picking up on some of those phrases here. And one of the things that's really interesting about this is um, one of the descriptions, we'll talk about it after we read it, but let's, let's hear from Scripture now and maybe less of me. So I've kind of gotten you ready. Here it is. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, Standing on Mount Zion, we've gone from a beach to a mountain. And with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. That's the jersey. That's the team. And I heard a sound from heaven, like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they were virgins, not about sexuality. And they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as firstfruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. You probably are aware that there are uh, some uh, brothers and sisters in Christ who read this and think there really will only be 144,000. But what we've come to understand when we're sort of looking at it as sort of like the symbology of it, what we actually see then is a, a super abundant um, count of all the people of God over all time and all places. All of them are going to be gathered together. All 12 tribes, all 12 apostles times a thousand. All the people of God in every era. And here's the thing that we need to know that needs to be reminded. We need to hear this in the same way they did. The thing that marks these folks out more than anything else is wherever the Lamb went, they went. 
Whatever the Lamb of God did, they did. Friends, that is the picture of discipleship. That is a picture of what it means to have the mark of the Father on your forehead. In light of all the options that are in front of us, in light of all the things that might be true of us, in light of all of the options and the competing worldviews, the the thing that's most true of this 144,000 people is that they have gone the way of the Lamb. They go wherever He goes. They serve whom He serves. They love who He loves. They sacrifice the way He sacrifices. The way of the Lamb is a different way. And ironically, while it might even look like defeat, it actually, as we just have said, it is victory and redemption. And then we move all of a sudden to this uh, series of visions of these, these three angels. And they sort of have this descending warning of, of what it means to deny the lamb. The first uh, lamb is, um, just says, hey, worship the Lord. The gospel is to worship and bow down to the one who has made it all. I had uh, one of our um, men of our church uh, that usually goes to the 915 service told me a joke last week that fits better this week, so I'm, I'm going to tell it. So uh, he said that um, there's this joke that um, the devil came to God and told God that, you, you know, God, you're not, actually, you're not really all that special. Anything you can do, I can do. You think these humans are so great and special and love them so much? That's fine, but I, I can do it too. In fact, I think I can do it better. God says, well, okay. I'll take your bet. Go ahead. So the devil takes some soil and starts to sort of mold and shape and pinch into form, and God says, whoa, 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 wait. Start with your own dirt. And friends, this first angel has something of that kind of a warning. Because many of us actually end up worshiping things that can't do all that we need God to do. We end up worshiping a thing that doesn't actually have all the power and capability and grace and mercy and strength that the Lord has. We choose a lesser God. We, we bow down at the shrine. And then right after that proclamation to, to, worship, um, to worship the creator of all is this second uh, angel that warns that Babylon's days are over. And in the Old Testament, Babylon became code word um, for um, empire that was vile and violent. The people of, of Babylon, the, exi- uh, the, um, the empire of Babylon had, had taken Israel and for a time, had pulled them into exile and destroyed them. So the symbol of Babylon is the symbol of, um, of human power. In fact, if you think all the way um, to the opening chapters of Genesis, Babylon is um, this gathering of people who work to reach God under their own creativity. And this Babylon character is like her, she's... She's no longer going to be successful 
with her adulteries. It's not about sex. It's about pulling people away from the heart of God. And then finally, this really uh, third and sort of uh, really tricky angel, what we see um, is, a, is the angel that declares the risk of unfaithfulness. What's going to happen to those who decide to live with the mark of the beast? To choose the easier and more comfortable way? What's going to happen? What will happen with those who uh, identify with the cult of compromise. And it talks about this judgment in a way that we're going to feel squeamish about. I just want to acknowledge that. We're going to talk about that for a little bit longer today in a moment. But what I can say is this, is God hands the wine of judgment to those who want it. And he hands that wine of judgment full strength, it says, it was customary in the first century to, to really water down wine just enough so that it kept all the bugs and disease out of it, but weak enough that you could drink it and a lot of it and be unaffected. But the cup of judgment is not going to be watered down. It'll be full strength. And the thing I want to say to you that's really clear from the Scriptures, there is something that is really serious and consequential about rejecting God continuously. There's something that is um, deeply costly about taking on the layers of evil required to continually reject God. So, that's fun. Let's read it. The three angels then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God! Give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, even the springs of water. The second angel followed and said, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Then a third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their foreheads or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image, or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patience and endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Friends, what we see is um, really a deep, deep warning 
be aware that there is no sort of um, idle choice, sort of resting choice. It just sort of naturally happens. You are called to make one, to worship the lamb or to take the mark of the beast. And in a way that makes us really uncomfortable, the Bible in this particular moment is, is really binary. There is no middle road. There is the narrow way or the wide path. And can I just say to you, friends, if you're sitting here politely listening but have not said yes to Jesus Christ, don't wait another hour. There are real consequences for saying no to Jesus. So then he goes on because he knows this will be very hard for people. And in verse 13, can we pull verse 13 up? He says this, Then I heard a voice, another voice from heaven say, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. Is there one more? Is that it? That's it. <clears throat> Sorry. So when I hear that, what I hear is, it's actually what I hear is the teaching of Jesus. Now this part scares us because it's, it's so attached to a violent image we don't know what to do with. And there's a, there's a, there's a picture of what it means to, to sit under the judgment of God. But it's actually not that different of the teaching of Jesus that probably we sort of like. Let's read this passage from Matthew chapter 16. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life, take the mark of the beast, identify with the culture. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels. Sounds kind of like Revelation. And then he will reward each person according to what they have done. That's not a list of the things you've done wrong. Have you sworn allegiance to the beast or to the lamb? That's the danger. And if that's not troubling enough, it goes on in this next little section. And what we see in this next little section are, are two harvests. One of them is a, is a harvest that is sort of this celebratory, beautiful harvest. So all of a sudden, the 144,000 bowing down on the mountain become wheat. And with a sickle, they're sort of gathered up, and it's the first fruits, as we read in, in that opening section of chapter 14. The first fruits are sort of gathered up. And then right after that, there's a second harvest of those who are not gathered up. There's a second harvest of those who are... Who, um, are not part of that first harvest. And the image is like grapes. 
and the grapes are put into a giant vat. And the, vi- the vat is, is, you know, tromped. And as the juice spills out from the grapes of wrath, some of you are hearing Steinbeck when I say grapes of wrath, some of you are hearing VeggieTales when I say grapes of wrath. What spills out, the, the wine that spills out is not wine or juice, but instead it's pictured as blood, deeply consequential, symbolic of life. And that blood, it says, spills out up to four feet and 160, 180 miles out. Now that is a deeply troubling image. Does that mean that God sort of glories and can't wait to just drench the earth with human blood? No, friends, it's an image. And if we're going to allow other things to operate as images, we have to let that operate as an image as well. And what it means, actually, is that judgment is going to be full and consequential and include everyone. So, let's read it. Last section. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle, reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel, who had charge of the fire, came from the altar and and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. What are we supposed to say about that? Can I just say a couple things? We worship a God of love. In fact, elsewhere, John says that God is love, full stop. So what I would like you to know is that wrath is not capricious. It's not random. There's there's no joy in it. In fact, wrath is another way of understanding God's love for those who have rejected it. Wrath is a way of understanding the the natural consequence of what happens between God and his children when they reject him over and over and over again. For those of you who have been parents, have you ever, in love, let your kids do something that you know would hurt them? Wrath is another way of understanding God's love. I 
And as we come to the end, this is really what I want you to know. Can we get this up? What we see in Revelation is there's real choice, but there's also real consequence. Throughout the scriptures, what we see, even, uh, even in the Old Testament, is um, you, you have two choices before you. Ask for me in my house, Joshua says, we will serve the Lord. But in the context of this part of Revelation, what we see is, is there's a real, complicated, heartfelt, consequential choice that people need to make. Are we going to find ourselves, for the ease of this life, sliding into the way of taking on the mark of the beast? Are we going to deny God so we can live today? And the invitation over and over and over in the scriptures and even in Revelation is this call to know and follow. But not everyone takes it. And the Bible's very clear. There's a real consequence to that. Now, I find that hard because my instinct is to want what almost all of us want a sort of benign, happy, grandfatherly figure that just blesses whatever we do and is going to continue to bless us no matter what happens. Right? We want a God who's simply just going to agree with whatever we want and sort of like, there, there, I'm so proud of you, keep going, love you. What we see actually is there's a real choice set before us. A real, spiritual, eternal choice. And when we turn away, it has eternal consequence. And when we turn to him, it has real eternal consequence. Bruce Metzger, this lion of biblical theology, wrote about it this way. Throughout Revelation, we have seen that if people persist in living contrary to the structures of God's universe, suffering is inevitable. John's words here mean that the most terrible thing that a person can do is to deliberately turn away from the living God. God respects our free will and will never force us to turn to Him. This picture of wrath and hell means nothing more or less than the terrible truth that for those who persist in rejecting God's love, the sufferings are self-imposed and self-perpetuated. We do not serve or worship a God of capricious anger. A one who's calling for us to know Him and follow Him. And for those who do not, there is only one consequence. We should maybe be worried about our non-Christian friends than we are. Miroslav Volf, whom I love, gorge on him, says it this way in a book called Exclusion and Embrace. God will judge 
not because God gives people what they deserve, but there is judgment because some people refuse to receive what no one deserves. Do you think you're sitting here and you deserve salvation? But you have had the wisdom and insight by God's grace to try to find a way to say yes. If evildoers experience God's terror, think wine press and sulfur. It will not be because they have done evil, because we've all done evil, right? That's not why. But because they have resisted to the end the powerful lure of the open arms of the crucified Messiah. If you reject the embrace, you don't get embraced. If you don't get embraced, there is no eternity. And so in a certain way, what we've been saying is uh, something that you might have heard from a man named Dave Ramsey. You know Dave Ramsey, you know who that is? He's like this financial peace university sort of guru. He, he tries to help people um, live wisely with their money. Budget, live within the budget, get rid of credit card debt, pay down, all this stuff that's like, yeah, duh, but a lot of us don't do it. He has this mantra that he says over and over and over again. And it actually is, it's a Revelation 15 kind of a mantra. Now, you might not have thought about it in spiritual terms, but that's what it is, and here it is. Live like no one else today to live like no one else tomorrow. Now, that can just be good, sound financial advice. You can understand how that's good advice, right? If you make the tough choices today, then you're going to be in a place financially where you're going to be able to do some things 20 years from now that maybe some of your peers will not be able to do because they're still managing debt or whatever else. Live like no one else today to live like no one else tomorrow. But in Revelation, friends, that also is about your spiritual life and health. And the invitation is to say yes today, right now, in a way that very few other people are going to do. Remember, chest deep, 160 miles long. Live like no one else today. Take on the mark of the Father. Live the ways of the Lamb. Live a life of worship that looks silent even to those who don't understand your faith. Live like no one else today that you might live like no one else tomorrow and forever? It's an identity question. How will you live? Who are you with? What matters the most? Dave Ramsey, Revelation 15, 14. Who knew? Friends, it's hard to sometimes say these things. I would like for there to not be wrath, I think. Just on the face of it, I'd like for there to not be judgment. But without justice, there, there, 
without judgment, there is no justice. And without justice, there's no opportunity for mercy. And without mercy, there is no eternal life. Friends, live like no one else today. Say yes to Christ that you might live for an eternity. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, these things are big and weighty and sometimes scary. And no doubt, Lord, sometimes we even understate how magnificent and beautiful and holy you are. But Lord, today, would you help us to live this pattern that we've seen in these scriptures? Would you help us to say yes to you and circle around the throne and live the way of the Lamb, following you wherever you go? Would you help us to say yes to the gospel and no to Babylon? Lord, we pray for the harvest, that we and everyone we know would be part of that first harvest. Lord, lead us in a way that we live like no one else today to live like no one else for eternity. In Christ's name, amen.